Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan, and I am a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. This is the second part of my conversation with Philip Roof, head of research and analytics at SparkChange. Okay, and, and you mentioned uh, elsewhere when I was reading one of your one of your bios that the biggest project you've been involved in so far was the development of a model to estimate the effect of regulated carbon markets on the PL of corpus. When, when we were discussing these issues, and I'm trying to think how we would use that as analysts, how would we factor this in? It, it, it again sounds extremely complicated. Can you give us some of your experience? Happily. Um, it's the second pillar of spark change, if we want so. So once we created this ETC and got more into discussion with investors, we actually figured out they all love to get active in carbon markets, but they don't know how. So they don't know to which extent. Um, the easy use case was right to create alpha. So to just think carbon prices go up so I can invest here, I make some money and I divest. The bigger use case we're seeing, though, is risk management for investors. So how is my portfolio in equities actually exposed to carbon pricing? How will that change in the future? And that's exactly what we work on at SparkChange. And we created a model there, which we call Carbon Alpha, to um, move all of this um, carbon price risk, so to say, out of ESG and make it a tangible financial impact. That's what we need, right? We need to understand what's the effect on PL going forward. Currently, if you see any kind of tools which give you a, the transition, so the climate transition risk linked to carbon pricing, it's some kind of model where someone uses a carbon footprint, multiplies it with some kind of global carbon price, and then tells all the sectors which have high emissions are under high risk. Per definition, right? Because if I take the whole emissions times the price, everyone with high emissions will come out on the on the wrong end of the stick. What we say it's more complicated, right? So what we put into context there is everything which a carbon market is set up by, right? Is the free allowances. I can have a lot of emissions. If I get everything for free, I don't care about the carbon price. Because then my effect, my real financial effect is zero. Um, I have to put in context how I manage this risk, right? Do I hedge my carbon? Do I actually pay today's prices? Or did I buy everything 10 years ago and I paid a price for five euros? Or three, if we go 10 years back. Um, that's what we want to solve with Carbon Alpha. So what we did is we created basically a model and a tool which goes bottom up into the nitty gritty of um, currently the European Union ETS. So the EU ETS, but we're expanding at the moment to the other global markets as well. To go into the nitty gritty of how much costs will a corporate have going forward? How do they manage these costs based on carbon pricing? And at the same time, how much revenues? Because there is a pass-through effect, right? Corporates will not just take all the costs on their bills, so to say, but they will try to pass this through to their clients. It's very different in different sectors. In the power market, it's very direct, right? Power prices are dependent on the marginal power plant. If this is a fossil power plant, carbon prices are and input into your revenues as well. So we need to put this into context. Um, for other markets, it's differently, but I think it's safe to assume that product prices will also increase if carbon prices increase. And that's what we want to do with Carbon Alpha, really make a detailed estimation of costs and revenues to not kind of punish companies because they are in a certain sector, but really make clear of they are in the metal sector, but they manage their risk pretty well they get a lot of free allowances, so they actually might be a net positive 
in CARM pricing and all in that negative. That's where we want to get to with CARM Alpha. Okay, so just to bring that to life a bit more, if you take a steel company, you look at how carbon intensive it is, you look at its production profile over maybe five, 10 years, you look at what that implies for the amount of carbon permits they need, and then you look at how many free allowances they get and how that will change through time. And then you can build up that picture. The last part of it is actually, that's just not a cost that's going to sit with the company. They're going to pass that through where they can. Exactly. Um, so we try to put also kind of the company-specific decarbonization pathways in place, right? So what's actually the plan of a company? How quickly do they want to decarbonize? Where do they want to decarbonize? So for us, we start on a, if you want to say, in, in carbon market, you say installation, you could also say on a factory level, right? So we do look on which kind of production facilities they own in a certain jurisdiction, a certain company, right? Do they do something there? Do they put, I don't know, will they um, refactor their, um, their blast furnace in an electric arc furnace? which has a big effect, right? A lot less scope two emissions, but with an electric arc furnace, you will need much more power. So there is a scope two effect on this as well. So that's kind of the detail we want to go into, really understand what companies are doing, where, go really regional, right? A global carbon footprint is no good indication for transition risk because most of these emissions are not priced globally. But if you're a sole European company, most of your emissions are priced. Um, so that's the level of detail we want to go into. And for a European investor or an investor investing in European steel companies, there's quite a difference. You know, we've got some of the, the Swedish steelmakers are quite far ahead in terms of decarbonizing steel production. So there are winners and losers here. And a lot of it could come down to how those free allowances change over time. Is this, do we now have a clear path on those free allowances or are we still subject to large regulatory risk? We have. A clear path towards 2025. That's more or less where a free allocation is um, published from the regulator. This can still change on a yearly level, but let's say only mildly. Um, for 2026 to 2030, the rules are clear, um, but we have to still calculate how much it is. So there's nothing published, but it's a regulated market. Regulation can change. And if I learned one thing about carb markets in the last 12 years, regulation will change which is a good thing, right? We have to adjust to reality. The fact that we now have a higher reduction target in Europe than in 2018, we needed to adjust regulation. And this might happen again, right? This might happen in 2027, 2028 again. There is a certain piece of regulation risk always there. And that's why it's so key to keep track of this. It's so key to run scenarios. It's so key to get an understanding where policy goes to, um, to keep track on this, right? It can change very likely will change regulation. But for now, regulation just changed, right? So for now, we're relatively clear where we're going to in the next couple of years. Are you confident the regulation is going one direction, i.e. that it's tightening up and therefore more advantageous towards those decarbonizing faster, the front runners, you might call them? That's a very, very good question. Three years ago, I would have said, I don't know. Um, if we look at the last reform, so the European regulator kind of agreed on a reform last December. So they negotiated the most ambitious reform to carbon markets in the worst year you can imagine. Big energy crisis, all prices are going high. Um, industry is complaining about high gas prices, high electricity prices. So it was the worst time you can imagine to even increase the pressure on carbon as well, right? But they did. 
So a very strong reform on carbon markets, very ambitious. So how I see it at the moment, there's no way Europe is going backwards at the moment. What will start now is basically, in my view, is how do we reach this target? So I think the battle, the policy battle will now be about subsidies. How can we help companies to get there? Not so much questioning whether we want to get there or not, but really is now the pathway and the how. So I think that's the next step is how can we support companies in their decarbonization pathway um, via subsidies, via certain maybe even inst other instruments um, on the kind of renewable energy side or whatever to kind of incentivize um, decarbonization. And the money that the European Union will receive from the carbon border adjustment will go to some degree to help subsidize or to fund the, the move in decarbonizing the European Union. Yes, um, all the money, right? What you have to what you have to keep in mind is that the EU ETS is already the second biggest chunk of money the EU receives after member state contributions. It's a lot of money we're talking about, right? And all this money is more and more funneled towards supporting decarbonization. Some member states actually also use it to fight energy poverty, right? To say, yes, electricity prices might go up because of carbon. So we have to support our private citizens as well in this transition. And we can use the money we make based on carbon allowances to support them. So you can do a lot with these um, with this market and especially with the revenues as well to kind of foster and help the right people, right, um, in this pathway. I'd like to pivot now onto more of the application and use. And you had one case study that you have uh, shown with the Norwegian insurer, and that was their use or an experiment within an equity portfolio of how to use carbon permits. Can you talk us through that and, and how what they tried to achieve and, and how that's going? Now, I, I hope I, I do them justice. Um, but what Hensteliger uh, is doing is they wanted to create a carbon price neutral portfolio. Um, it's for now, it's still a little bit an experiment, but they, if the experiment went right, they want to roll this out on a quite big scale is their idea was to say, um, we hedge a lot of risk in our portfolios, right? Whether it is, I don't know, FX, whether it's other, other risks, can we do the same for carbon? Can we create a portfolio which is neutral to carbon price risk? And they use our carbon alpha model results to do that. So to say, they build up a small portfolio and they check how high is the carbon price risk. So based on our model, how much will they actually have to buy carbon in the future and what's kind of the, the P&L implications, right? And then have a look, um, kind of level out on a portfolio level, right? So what's still left, first of all, right, to see where are the positively affected, the negative affected companies. And then they ended up with a kind of still remaining carbon price risk, so to say. And what they did to, um, to basically mitigate this is go directly and invest into the European carbon market. So they bought EUAs, which means now if carbon prices goes up, if the carbon price goes up, right, and their portfolio suffers to a certain extent, their investment in carbon allowances gets more profitable. So they can balance this risk, basically. Um, they try this at the moment on a relatively small scale portfolio. As far as I know, the results are really promising. Um, and they're looking now on, um, on expanding this. What they are saying, and I completely agree, right? That's just one part of the puzzle to reach kind of net zero and to move from an investor perspective, kind of um, increase the pressure on corporates to decarbonize, right? You have active ownership as another thing you could do, right? But it's not really have 
it doesn't have clear results. So the difference is with active ownership, you can force maybe a single company to reduce emissions. What happens then? Another company could increase emissions, right? Because allowances are still there on the EUETS level. If you do basically what Finsetica does, you take EUAs out of the market as well, you more or less force the entire market to decarbonize because there are less allowances available. And I think that's the key difference there. And generally, if you want to invest into, um, into the EUA market, if you invest physically into EUA, so you really buy physical EUAs, you do force the entire market to decarbonize because you withhold allowances from that market. Can you just explain that point? So if, we, if an investor buys the permits, but they don't retire them or they don't use them, I guess, so you might term it, then that results in further decreases in allowances. Is that correct? You have two effects, exactly. So the first one is if you buy a physical permit now, it's not available for um, emitting, right? So some company in the ETS will have to reduce because you hold this permit. So it has a real physical effect. However, if you sell this permit again, right, someone else can emit. So that's reversible, that effect. What happens, though, is we talked about this market stability reserve in the beginning, right? So this supply-side reaction that basically comes into action based on length in the market, so oversupply. It basically looks how much allowances are in the market from the past, which haven't been surrendered. And if it's above a certain threshold, next year's auction volume, so next year's supply is cut. So if there's too much surplus in the market, we're going to stop putting new allowances on the market. That's the idea. So if you think about it, if you as an investor hold an EUA, that's per definition surplus. Nobody used it, but it was given out, right? So you can force that system to basically cut next year's emissions. So it pays what you want to, you could say a little bit of a climate dividend if you invest physically in EUAs because you do cut next year's supply and that's not reversible. It's not one-to-one. It's 24% of that is cut in the year after. But you could say, well, you actually, you actually make a lasting effect in the ETS when investing in EUAs now, which is not reversible. With a hedging strategy, you may unwind that hedge, so you put that supply back into the market. So I guess it depends on the price. And therefore, you could think about the price you might sell the permits back at would be greater than what might be implied for a one and a half degree scenario. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> yes, no, it, uh, it, it's, it's, not only, it's not only a hedge, right? It's also potential alpha. And I mean, carbon prices were probably the best performing com- or one of the best performing com- uh, commodities in the last three, four years. Um, with the current reform, it's very likely that we see further price increases. So it's, um, that's what for me makes carbon as an asset class so thrilling because you can combine a lot of, um, a lot of use cases there from, right? creating alpha to creating impact to managing risk. You can do all at the same time if you want to. Um, and that's what makes it so interesting. And trying to understand how it works in various sectors, I can imagine how with the steel sector, their costs are going up, the permits prices going up. But for an energy company, it, it was benefiting. An energy company was benefiting from higher prices over the last 12, 24 months. So you would have had the hedge, you know, actually not working that way. You were going, your equity was going up and the hedge was going up as well. So can you talk us through the characteristics of, of the market and how you think about those things? As an energy comp- company, and let's talk about power companies first, um, you, the, the pass-through effect especially is very interesting, right? So how power is priced, there's a direct link between carbon prices 
and power prices. So power companies are also the biggest um, the biggest buyer in this market. Up to 80% of the shortfall sits with electricity companies. So they do the lion's share of the buying. They do this for years, so they are very well equipped on how to do this. And they have very um, thoughtful and thought-through hedging strategies. Generally, a lot of power companies are positively exposed to carbon pricing, especially the ones who own renewable or nuclear capacity, right? Because they will get, if carbon prices go up, the revenue goes up, but they don't have any costs. The ones where this is not really favorable for are the carbon intense companies. So the ones who own the lignite fleet, who own a lot of fossil generation, right? They probably don't get 100% of their costs back from the power market. So these guys have to really think about a good strategy. Prime example, RWE. Um, but they, again, very bold move back in 2019. They bought a lot of carbon at low prices because they said we are disproportionately affected here. We are more affected than our competition. So we need to do something here. Very bold, very, now in hindsight, very good move um, to go in at very low prices. So they mitigated their risk quite a bit. Um, but where I agree, and we had we had a lot of this discussion over last year, right? Not because of carbon, but because of gas prices, is the power market is inherently working in a way that it incentivizes certain technologies, although they don't have the costs, right? Last year, we had it with gas. Gas prices were going so much up that the power price were going so much up. But you can imagine not all producers had to bear this gas cost, right? If you produce with coal, nuclear, renewable, whatever, you didn't have to pay these higher prices, but you did get a lot of revenues. You can call this windfall profits now. But in the end, that's how a power market works. That's how a merit order works. Same could happen to carbon, right? If carbon prices go, I mean, more up as they currently do, it's very, very lucrative for renewable and nuclear producers. But also, that's what we want to a certain extent, right? If it's more, more lucrative to run the wind park, then more companies will build wind parks. So we reach our targets. That's in the end what we want to do, right? And looking at the price of the, the permits, it's been very volatile. You know, obviously, we've had the issues in the last you know, 12 months now since the, the war in Ukraine began. But weather also has an impact in more normal times. Yeah. Um, as I said, power companies are the main buyer on a day-to-day -day basis. And dependent, so it's really weather dependent by now what you produce your power with, right? It's really dependent whether you have a lot of sun, whether you have a lot of wind, or whether you have none of the two. Um, depends on how much coal, how much gas, how much lignite generation plants are still running. So we had the effect um, early December last year. We went into a very, um, generally very mild winter, right? Really high temperatures all over Europe, not much fossil generation going on. And then we went a little bit in a cold snap in December. You saw it carbon prices immediately, right? More gas plants were running, more coal plants were running. Power companies did not hedge this part, right? Because it comes more or less as a surprise. So they needed to go to the market and buy carbon. That's where you always have this weather effect. If you suddenly have a cold snap, or even if it gets too warm in summer, right? You have the problems regularly that French nukes go out of, um, go ha have to go into maintenance or can't work if, if um, temperatures are too high because they can't cool down anymore. They go out, more gas plants, more coal plants have to run, prices go up. So it is, um, to a certain extent, very weather dependent. Um, and it's all dependent on other energy commodities as well. So as the power sector is so much in the center, it's a regular energy commodity, which is linked to the other energy commodities.
again, it's trading the instrument. When we think about physically backed commodities, uh, if it's an ETC or ETF, we see, you know, if it's a gold ETF, we know that the gold is held in a vault and, and the embankment in London, or at least for some. How does it work with carbon permits? There is physical re- so there's digital physical a digital registry right um, which is organized by the European Union. Um, this is the only place where you can hold physical UAs, um, and that's what uh, what we do in the end. So we have an account in the digital registry of the European Union, and we hold these allowances there, which then back up our ETC. So you can say it's similar like gold, right? It's just all dig- digital. And then the other risks that we, we we consider regulatory risk, which we've talked about, is is very high here. Um, liquidity risk. Do you think that's an issue, or is it is it quite a liquid market? The European market is very liquid, right? The other markets in the world not so much. But if I remember correctly, you have a daily liquidity in European in the EUTS of roughly two and a half to three billion euros daily. It's quite liquid. You don't run into any liquidity risk normally. And there. Are- is a futures market based off the physical? That's the futures market. Yeah, right. That's the futures. Market. And then when we think of commodities again, we think of you know the the the, the shape of the forward curve. We think of backwardation. We think of contango. There's no cost of storage, I guess, here. Even though maybe the EU costs you something for administration. So how what does the curve look like? It's always in contango because of how what a carbon allowances is, right? Um, that you could say there is a cost of storage, right? And that's capital cost. Um, that's really all. It doesn't. You don't have a loss of quality. A ton is a ton. Emission allowances in Europe are fungible over time, so you can use still the 2009 allowance. You can still use now, and you can still use it in 10 years. So there's no loss of quality. Um, it's always in contango. The forward curve and the contango is more or less defined by interest rates. So it's the cost of capital which defines the um, the forward curve in the EUETS. Very much like a financial future, we've got the interest rate, no dividend, so that the, the, the forward is high. And 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 lastly, maybe we wrap up on this. You're you're, you're very much supportive of this market. Um, you mentioned RWE buying very cheap permits previously at four or five euros. But I guess if long term we achieve what we want to achieve, which is alignment with one and a half degrees, and if technology in particular comes forward to help us to achieve that. There's a huge price risk for for carbon permits. Would you agree? Absolutely. And you can outsmart this only for so long, right? Um, RWE, as an example, or other companies like Salzgitter, they did a lot towards 2019-20. They didn't hedge everything until eternity, right? At one point, the carbon price will catch up with them. Um, But... Again, if you want to understand the risk for a specific company, you have to go into details. It's not enough to look on a on a sector level and how high emissions are. Um, there is a carbon. There is definitely a carbon price risk. This is increasing significantly, even if you think carbon prices don't go up any further. You nevertheless have a significant risk because companies will have to pay for more of their emissions. What we discussed about CBAM, right? And new sectors coming into the system. Subsidies are going away. So even if prices stay where they are the risk is increasing on a corporate level. Well, Philip, this has been a thoroughly interesting and wide-ranging conversation. I really admire your passion and commitment for your work. (laughs) (laughs) And what what an exciting area to be involved in. Thank you for taking the time to share your knowledge and insights with us on the CFA UK podcast. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Just not to add that I will be speaking at the CFA UK's climate conference, Investing in the Net Zero Transition, taking place in London on the 23rd of May. 
my session covers how to assess and support investments in companies that are navigating the transition to net zero. I'd love to see you there. Feel free to say hello and we can chat. You can book your place by visiting cfauk.org slash net zero transition. And thank you for listening. If you found this conversation interesting, then please hit like and share with others. Thank you and goodbye.